I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Siddhartha Ribeiro, is a Brazilian neuroscientist, writer, and science communicator. He is the founder and vice director of the Brain Institute at Federal University of Rio Grande do Norte in Natal, Brazil, where he has been a full professor since 2008. His fields of research include memory, sleep and dreams, neuroplasticity, symbolic competence in non-human animals, computational psychiatry, and psychedelics. His most recent book, The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams, published in the original Portuguese in 2019 and in English in 2021, is the subject of today's interview. So Siddhartha, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much, Stuart, for having me, and hello, everybody. Well, I have to tell you, before we start on the main topic, all those fields of research sound utterly fascinating to me. And assuming this interview goes well, I'd love to interview again at some later point about any of those topics. So th the first question I have, which is really kind of the most general question, has, I understand, multiple, multiple answers. And the question is, you know, why do we dream? So part of it is what's going on neurologically, but first we have various cultures and peoples from time immemorial uh, explaining what dreams are for and what they mean. And I have a feeling that the title of your book, The Oracle of Night, will give some clue as to where you go in your book. So let, let's start there. Let's start with the, the, the cultures and, and the peoples and what dreaming has has meant historically i think that's uh, you spend a good portion of the the first part of your book talking about that and come back to it over and over again it's clear that you're not interested even though you're a neuroscientist in some just simply mechanistic explanation and i think that's what makes your book so special thanks i, I really wanted to go way beyond biology because it's impossible to make sense of what dreams are just by looking at biology only or by looking at psychology only Everywhere we look in terms of human culture, if we look towards the past and we go back to Sumeria or Babylon or Egypt or Greece or Rome or China, for that matter, India, anywhere you look, and also anywhere you look in current societies that are either hunter-gatherers or semi-nomadic that, that exist today in North America and in South America, in Africa, in, in Australia, you'll see a very clear importance of dreams for private life, for social life, for political matters, for things that have to do with the common good. And these are not just something that, that is clearly obvious to everybody, it's something that requires interpretation. So the, the name, the Oracle of Night, has to do with this notion that dreams, when properly interpreted, may be of future relevance. Of course, everybody, I mentioned all these cultures uh, across the times, they, they were not naive. They knew that most dreams are confusing and that to make sense of, of dreams is hard work and requires hard work uh, and that one should be critical of whatever comes through dreaming. But they also recognized the tremendous power of dreams to produce solutions for, for real life and to offer uh, ways out of real challenges. My book is an effort to, to create a, a plausible biological 
explanation for the facts of anthropology, of history. And then we need to also look into, into the evolution of all that. So when we think of why we sleep, we need to think, and why we dream, we need to think of the evolution of sleep and dreaming. So we're talking about millions and millions of years and ancestry that goes back to the origin of mammals, uh, and even before that, and then try to understand what happened in, in our particular human lineage that differs from the other mammals, in, not, in, not in dreaming, because many, many mammals dream, but in being able to share those dreams and interpret those dreams and, make, and, and try to make sense of reality based on those dream images. And this is something that uh, has been lost in our contemporary tradition. And, and I argue in the book, and I argue, I have been arguing uh, since it was published, that we need to rescue the art of dreaming. We need to go back to a, a routine contact with the inner world that is depicted uh, during dreaming. So one thing that you're implying in what you said is that uh, dreams can be useful to various cultures and has been for eons and eons by providing some kind of guidance for the future. Partly predictive, but not just predictive, also guidance. I mean, some, maybe it's divine guidance as it is, or seen that way, but gives some kind of guidance as to what to do next in some kind of very critical situation, not your tri not, nothing trivial, but it could, a lot of the examples that you give in your book have to do with war situations, going into battle, whether to go into battle, how to go into battle, what the likely outcome will be, whether it's better to, to not do it. Well, I think you're touching uh, on actually what allows us to link biology and psychology and history and so on, which is the need for survival. So dreaming is a, an adaptive process, which has a neurobiological basis that allows one to, based on yesterday, navigate tomorrow, find the way out of the problems of tomorrow. Uh, this can be sometimes quite explicit, often not explicit, but when the stakes are high, the images are more explicit. But the critical thing here is to understand that we're not talking about a deterministic oracle, but a probabilistic oracle. So it's, it's about probabilities. It's about reactivation of memories that come from the past, but they might have relevance for the future. And this is where the precognition and, and premonitory aspect of dreaming morphs into what you described here as guidance. So guidance is, is to tell you what may happen if you act like this or if you don't act like this. So that's the belief system of the ancients and not just the ancients, there are plenty of cultures today that still believe this. And frankly, there are still plenty of people in so-called modern societies that believe it too. I mean, this idea hasn't disappeared. I'm wondering, though, from your book, it's really hard to tell if you believe it's real that dreams can be predictive and or provide guidance from somewhere beyond the person. I, I get the sense from the book that you're kind of agnostic on that question, that maybe you'd rather not answer it. I, I don't know if maybe you'd rather not answer it here as well. Uh, when you say beyond the person, you mean at, like in terms of collective unconscious or are you talking about like non extra physical or whatever non stuff that science does not acknowledge or or study right now well i, I think all of the above that uh the pre-modern belief if i can call it that is that dreams bring information beyond the person 
whether it's f from the future or whether it's from divine divine source. Right, I see your question. Now I understand it. What I argue in the book is that we we can understand the phenomenology of dreaming by assuming it's about an inner world. The inner world means something inside people's brains, in the brains. That does not mean I, I deny or affirm anything else. So to make it more clear, people in the past, and they still do, believe that when you meet dream characters, you're meeting spirits, for example. And those spirits would have an existence beyond the body of the dreamer. I, as a scientist, I have no idea about this. I have no evidence that this is this may be true. And I'm quite open to anything that, that is good evidence. But what I can say is that we don't need to invoke any of that to make sense of the, f of, of the phenomenology of dreaming. So we can produce a plausible narrative based on the evidence available to explain these phenomena that people experience in terms of stuff that happens in neurons that happens across brain regions that involves neurotransmitters. So, so we understand enough in terms of mechanisms to come up with a plausible conjecture. Whether this is all that is there, who am I to know? <laughs> but I'm also quite skeptical of anything that is just based on, on people's desires. Sometimes people come to me and say, well, I had this dream in which I had precognition and I, had, I could predict something that I could not possibly predict based on a probabilistic oracle. It had to be a deterministic oracle. And then, of course, my answer to that is, first of all, a deterministic oracle requires a new physics. We need, we need physics that we don't have today. And it may well be that this, is, this will be in the future uh, what will happen. But, but right now, we're not there. There's nothing like that. So the future is unpredictable based on what we know now in science. The problem in terms of the physics is that the, the ancient cultures or, or even uh, current cultures that are pre-modern believe that there is another world. There's the physical world and then there's some kind of parallel world, whether you want to call, call it a spiritual world or something else, that has some kind of power over this one. And that's a kind of dualistic view in a way that I think modern science rejects because if something is completely in another realm, how could it possibly interact? Well, th so I think this is exactly where I, where I think we can agree, perhaps, that if, if we understand that this, uh, this, this other world is within, we understand how it can actually affect reality because it can affect, affect reality from within. So when one prays for his goddess or god of choice, and for, for so as to have to be more, to be braver or to be more resilient or to sustain and and resist uh, pain and so as to overcome some challenge um, this is actually going to have you know many produce many changes in people's metabolic environment and they will feel the effects of neurotransmitters like noradrenaline like dopamine they will feel the effects of serotonin they will feel the effects of adrenaline of cortisol and these things can change people's behaviors in ways intended in the ways asked in this dialogue with those entities so so i think that to say that 
the 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 divine entities live within the brain is actually to to offer a, an avenue of investigation on the mechanisms that allow one to through belief produce changes in in one's own behavior and, and emotions now when one is asking for divine favors that relates to changes in the outer world i think they are getting things they're they're confusing things right because they're confusing confounding their inner world in which these entities exist with things that exist out of them and in fact you know cannot be affected just through their willpower so this is a good place i think to uh, bring freud into the picture which you talk about in your book of uh, where for freud that other realm from within would be the unconscious of course and it, it has a sense of being in some ways other than oneself, even though it isn't, because it's un unconscious. But there are ways to tap into the unconscious, and he famously called uh, dreams the royal road to the unconscious, and that the guidance can come from, from there. And he, he was a kind of, a, in a sense, a bridge figure in my, in my mind from the view of dreams as coming from something outside the person to being inside the person, and yet even so very meaningful and i think he was able to retain that even ch changing the paradigm to something in the direction of scientific but for the purpose of understanding oneself absolutely i i think that both freud and jung offered us this way of thinking that that solves the problem so how can you receive guidance from a dream creature if this dream creature is you. Well, the thing is that our mind has many, many different parts and our mind has many, many parts that are not available to consciousness. In fact, most of it. In fact, the overwhelming majority of the mind is subthreshold, right? I mean, everybody, let's imagine people listening now, please close your eyes and imagine, try to imagine the first friend you had when you were very young, when you were a child. Can you picture that person? Picture that person's face, name. Okay, so we, we, it's, it's an experiment, a mental experiment. Were you thinking of that person 10 minutes ago? Probably not. Earlier today, probably not. Yesterday, probably not. For years, perhaps, you didn't think of that person. But you were able to rescue that memory very fast. And which means that this memory is latent. It's not active. It was not active. It's active now because we prompted it. So the unconscious is the, the vast majority of the mind and the creatures of the mind with whom we interact during dreaming exist there and they have a life of their own. And the fact that they have a life of their own allows them to dialogue with us in ways that enrich our conscious e ego, our conscious I. So I think it would also be important to talk about the surreal nature of dreams, how bizarre they are and what does that mean? Um, I, I think what Freud was saying is that there's a, a residue from the day, but also this pressing preoccupations that get merged together, but without a censor or, or an editor. And I think the term that you use is a reverberation uh, from the day, uh, but then you have this kind of crazy juxtapositions of things with no sense that it's impossible. I mean, the, for the dreaming mind, everything's possible. So I was wondering if I could give you uh, an analogy from improvisational theater there's actually an improvisational theater game where you have one person leave the room 
telling them that when they come back, they're going to guess the story that the group made up. But after they leave the room, you tell the people in the room that the person who's, who's going to be doing the guessing, who can only ask yes or no questions, just listen for the last letter of their question. If it's A through M, say yes. And if it's N through Z, say no. So it's virtually random whether it's going to be yes or no. But the person guessing the dream, I'm sorry, guessing the story doesn't know that. And so you presumably the content of the questions is going to be coming from the guesser's mind, but the, the way it's put together is random. And yet they think they're coming up with a coherent story that they're guessing. So I don't know if that fits for you in terms of uh, an analogy for, for dreaming. Well, I believe that dreams are meaningful. And I believe they are more meaningful uh, when the stakes are high and the problems are less. When we are faced with three problems, if you need to just survive, so you need to not be killed, kill something to eat and, and mate. And this is what animals go through in nature. Dreaming is probably more powerful and simpler to interpret. When you have tons of problems, they can become so mixed that the interpretation is, first of all, there's no, no cohesive structure to the dream. It's just a, a mix of problems and desires, as you said, expectations. So it's much harder to make any sense of, of, of the dream, but it can be done. But I think what you touch here in your, with your comparison with improvisational theater is that the act of trying to interpret someone else's dream has to be a very soft act because it's very easy to impose stuff on the interpretation that have nothing to do with the dreamer. Psychoanalysts, clinicians in analytical psychology and in other fields of psychology are well-trained to listen rather than, than offer explanation, right? Offer interpretation. I believe that through careful introspection and through a good adherence to some you know, good practices of dream interpretation, one can often, if not always, interpret dreams in a satisfactory manner. But of course, a dream doesn't have to, to have one interpretation. It can have multiple interpretations. It's really about being useful for the, the dreamer and for his or her community. And I think this aspect of dreaming, not just for yourself, but dreaming for the community is something that is present in many uh, existing societies, for example, in the Amazon, for example, among the Yanomami in, in the border between Brazil and Venezuela. Uh, the dreams concern the community. The dreams have to do with everybody's common good. And they can have multiple interpretations because there are multiple points of view and multiple interests in a community. So one thing that I think that you're pushing against in your book is the idea that dreams are meaningless, and it's clear, clearly you're doing that. And I just want to quote from your book where you're quoting Francis Crick, uh, one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA. And you write, to Francis Crick, dreams were just fragments of memory assembled at random. Dreaming results from the simple erasing of irrelevant memories, which freed up space for storing new memories. In other words, dreams existed not for remembering, but for forgetting, since the random activation of the cortex promoted the relentless erosion of recently acquired memories, generating a learning in reverse or an unlearning, which was essential for the system not to fill up its capacity for forming memories. 
One corollary of the theory was that the content of dreams was intrinsically meaningless, an idea that absolved the dreamer of any meaningful connection with their own dreams. And I think you say that this view of, of Crick's was common, especially in the, the last half of the 20th century. And you were very much pushing up against that, that view and, and trying to, uh, I think, to debunk it. Yes, uh, I think that to recognize that there's forgetting overnight when we sleep is a necessity. There's a lot of forgetting and sleep has to do with forgetting. But, it, but dreams are way beyond forgetting. In fact, dreams tend to be made of memories that are quite relevant that we do not forget. It's in a way quite the opposite. So let's be clear, during sleep, many connections, many synaptic connections between neurons, linking neurons, get to be erased. There's a lot of forgetting going on when we sleep, and it's very necessary. If we were to remember every single detail of our lives, we would be crazy. It would be impossible. Nobody that is listening now can uh, know for sure what she or he was wearing 322 days ago. Or what did, what did you have for lunch 4,212 days ago? So we forgot all that, but we lived those experiences. We had them in memory at some point and they're gone. And you know, this is great. In fact, we need to remember very few of the experiences that we have that are really relevant for a long period of time. But this distinction is essential and sleep has a lot to do with that. So I, in my book, I go uh, through many of the mechanisms that involve the electrical activation of memories, the reactivation that becomes a reverberation of a memory trace during sleep, how that causes changes in the entry of calcium in the cells and how that activates proteins that uh, phosphorylate other proteins and eventually regulate genes, which will commit the, the proteins encoded by those genes will commit memories to long-term storage. So, so this is all happening and you don't have to be conscious of that for that to benefit you. And it doesn't really require dreaming. It's about, it's about stuff that is happening underneath at a lower level of explanation, which is that of cells and, and, and circuits in the brain. Dreaming comes on top of all that, but it's not just the froth over something that is quite important. It's actually tremendously important on its own because it's really the expression of a mechanism that allows us to simulate actions, behaviors, interactions that are quite sophisticated, quite complex, that can last minutes and dozens of minutes and up to an hour sometimes. And this has a lot of value in terms of adapting to a, a challenging world. So one thing I describe in my book is uh, how long it took for, for this very long REM sleep uh, phenomenology that we have in humans to evolve and how it propelled us forward in terms of producing uh, individuals with more complex behavior and with the ability to create culture and to, and to expand culture. So I link uh, very much the emergence of dream interpretation in our lineage, the emergence of imagination from dreaming, so dreaming awake, and how that allowed us through a relationship with dead ancestors to accumulate knowledge very fast. And that has to do with the several uh, cognitive expansions that we uh, expressed in our lineage that our, our ancestors developed and that allowed us to very, very fast leave the caves and, and get to the world where we are at now. 
So one of the examples uh, that you cite in your book, which is a very famous one, is that August Kakule's uh, solving of the structure of benzene was solved from a dream, that he dreamt of a snake eating its tail, and then he realized that benzene was a ring. Uh, and there were lots and lots of examples of that sort of thing. And, and, you, and another one that I thought was really both charming and fascinating was Salvador Dali, the, the painter, the surrealist painter, would take naps holding onto a fork or spoon such that when he f just fell asleep and his hand relaxed, it would clatter to the floor, presumably a tile floor that would be very loud, would wake him up and he'd have some kind of insight of, of some kind of artistic problem that he was trying to solve, or maybe just a new idea altogether. That there's something about that uh, interface between wakefulness and, and, and dreaming or, or sleeping that lends itself to uncensored creativity. I thought that was really an amazing practice of his. I don't know if you were recommending it necessarily. <laughs> well, there are several reasons why we become more creative when we pay attention to our dreams. His method was, was very pragmatic, in fact, because he was painting the image that was at his disposal at this moment of waking up from from the hypnagogic uh, state of sleep, which produces those not very complex uh, movie-like dreams, but more like clips or even gifs that that he he used to to inspire his painting. So there are many ways in which one can probe dreams for creativity, and many times it's just spontaneous. But there are reasons, and and now we understand better why, especially during REM sleep, during the second half of the night, we tend to to mixed ideas in ways that can be of use for the arts or for science or for your life in general. Uh, for business, I, I talk about the invention of the sewing machine and how that came from dream experience. Uh, and, and those reasons have to do with molecular aspects of sleep. For example, the lack of norepinephrine during REM sleep allows memories to associate in a more free manner. But also the overall deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. Not all parts of the prefrontal cortex are deactivated during REM sleep, but most are. And this produces, in a way it produces the, as you said, uh, the lack of censorship or the, or the partial lack of censorship of dreaming. So we, without many of those prefrontal uh, brain areas active, one has difficulty with decision-making, with inhibiting certain behaviors, and also with judging whether some, something is bizarre or not, or whether something is acceptable or not. So during regular dreaming, we, we have a very low bar for, for all those things, and we, we're basically going along, and anything that happens won't really surprise us. We keep going. And sometimes we have things that really that surprise us, and they can even make us uh, wake up. But in most cases, because of those both molecular and, let's say, circuit-level reasons or neuroanatomical reasons, dreaming tends to be a very free state that can produce associations between memories that are unlikely and that may be just absurd in, in the real life or, quite in contrary, quite uh, interesting, adaptive things that make sense, innovation, basically innovation. So you might say that dreams help prepare for the future or can, whereas sleep in general helps to kind of hone the past in a sense. Uh, and getting back to the role of sleep and, and memory, uh, one thing that was I found very fascinating, I think this is from your own work, that 
the role of sleep for memory is both remembering and forgetting that some synapses are strengthened during sleep and, and other others are whittled away. It's kind of a kind of honing process that you can't just strengthen memories that you have to prioritize memories or, or not you, but the brain. And in order to prioritize memory, some of them have to be strengthened. Others, others need to be whittled away. And that it's a very creative process in a sense, but it's creative by the unconscious mind rather than a deliberate conscious process. Absolutely. Most of what we do with our memories in terms of long-term storage happens during sleep. And it has nothing to do with the conscious mind. But of course, the conscious mind will have an effect on that. And, and these were things that Freud studied, uh, for example, the processes of suppression, conscious suppression and unconscious repression of memories, uh, something that was investigated by Freud at length. And these are things that nowadays in neuroscience have been studied uh, using things like functional magnetic resonance imaging. And, and we now understand much better that there are mechanisms by which the conscious mind through activation of the prefrontal cortex can inhibit brain regions like the hippocampus or the amygdala so as to suppress certain memories that are particularly aversive, particularly negative. They produce some sort of, of mental pain. This is very important in real life. It's happening all the time, whether we understand it's happening or not. Uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting how these contents that have been either suppressed or repressed surface during dreaming, uh, sometimes in disguise, sometimes uh, quite clearly. And, and gaining insight into this can allow one to, first of all, understand one's desires and fears, but also understand better how to navigate these desires and fears and challenges so as to adapt. I think this link with adaptation is very important and creativity and innovation have to do with that. So, so sleep is about forgetting, it's about remembering, it's about restructuring what we know, but it's also about concealing some stuff in the brain that can produce problems, but can also be the source of good ideas. Yeah, let's talk more about that idea of concealment or disguise. Uh, Freud thought that dreams existed as a way of trying to um, symbolically uh, attain what one longs for or uh, what what one wishes for, but that for whatever reason, that uh, that desire is, is thwarted and maybe it's too dangerous. And so therefore, in order to make it seem less dangerous, it's disguised. And the analyst's job is to help the person to kind of decipher their own desires in a sense, so that they can maybe find a way to attain it in a, in a safe way. So I don't know if the neurology of dreaming is is uh, supporting that or not yet. I think we, some of that is probably true, but neuroscience abandoned uh, the investigation of Freud and Jung for many, many decades. And, and I think there's a lot of work to be done. So we sometimes, yes, of course, there is th this sort of concealment process because people are repressed. So if you have desires that you shouldn't have because society does not accept them, uh, there's there's moral censorship that is partial, but still there when you dream. But sometimes we need to acknowledge also the flavor of randomness that dreams can have. And that has to do, as I said before, uh, even with low levels of norepinephrine or deactivation of prefrontal cortex, which will enhance the randomness of the associations. So I'm not saying that the associations are random, but there's some degree of randomness to them. 
So sometimes, so you say, oh, I was dreaming about that person, and that person became this other person. Sometimes this this conversion is very meaningful. Sometimes it's re it's basically telling you that you in your brain you're representing them together. They're linked. And sometimes this is, is more like a glitch in the system that it's because at that particular moment, the neurochemical rules for electrical propagation were such that this, this association happened as more, more or less as an accident. Now, to tell the, apart what is accident and what is meaningful is the job of the dreamer, is the job of whoever helps the dreamer to interpret the dream. But it's also something that often requires a long series of dreams to be viable. Why I say that? Because if something keeps popping out from one dream to the next, then it's not an accident. If you just have one a one-time association that is quite strange, it may be, you know, just noise in the system. But if you, if it keeps coming up, then that's a different story. Yeah, I mean it's what we say in therapy if somebody forgets what they were going to say, you know, you say well if it's important it'll come up again. So you don't have to worry. So I wanted to bring your attention. I don't know if you've heard of this this film. There was a surrealist film. I believe it was released in 1947. And I think the, the filmmaker was Hans Richter called Dreams That Money Can Buy. And it was about a service by a kind of reverse analyst that someone would come to you and tell you what their problems were. And then the analyst would put the patient into a uh, hypnotic trance and give them the dream they needed to have. So it's kind of a reverse process. Instead of the analyst interpreting the dream, they're giving them the dream. It's 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 worth seeing. It's very very cool idea. I, I saw this um, uh, probably over forty years ago in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at a little theater called Off the Wall Cinema because they projected it onto the walls. That was a good <laughs> good place to see such a strange film. I looked it up. I, I have. I will see it <laughs> soon. <laughs> very cool. Clearly, if there's one message of your book, it's that dreams matter and dreams are meaningful and dreams can provide uh, guidance for for each of us. And at least twice, maybe three times in the book, you um, kind of are advising the reader, start a dream journal. Here's how you do it. <laughs> you know, you can, you can learn about yourself and learn about uh, what you need to do in life. So I thought that was very cool. That was, you know, beyond what a typical science-oriented book would, would do. Yeah, I'm, I've been getting uh, feedback from readers. It was first uh, published in Brazil and Portuguese, and then Portugal and other countries, Italy and, and, and then Spain. And the more that people read the book, I get this feedback that people that didn't have a rich dream experience for many, many years, they go back to that, something they experience often in during adolescence. And they go back to that because because they followed those invitations that I make in the book at the beginning, in the middle, and then at the end to get people going through a period of focus on dreaming as they read the book. The book is, is, is exactly as you say, it has this message of dreaming matters. And, and if people are not dreaming at all, or not, in fact, they are dreaming, but they're not remembering that they're dreaming, the book in, in a way becomes not really useful. I think the, the book is really useful when people are connected to their dreams. And what the, the, the cool feedback that I've been getting is that when they, when people try to record their dreams uh, on a daily basis, when they wake up, they very quickly regain the ability to remember a lot of their dreaming. And this is, I think it's a quite auspicious signal. And, and, and as, as I've been saying, 
dreaming is not so difficult to connect with because it's very deeply ingrained in our uh, body. Dreaming is as natural and spontaneous as breathing. But of course, many people do not remember their dreams and to be able to go back to their to this ability to remember requires a little bit of change in habits and 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 that people stick to it for at least three four days and you might say it's as, as riveting uh, as a netflix series and uh, the price is right and you'll never run out of episodes <laughs> <laughs> love it yes absolutely we were talking about the uh, possibility of remembering one's dreams more easily. And uh, I, I suppose that means keeping a, a dream journal. But let, let's go to the next step beyond that, which you talk about at the end of your book, and that's lucid dreaming, which I had heard about uh, before. And it's really an astounding possibility for people. And uh, tell us, what is, what is lucid dreaming and what, what is it uh, useful for? Okay, so in many traditions in the East, as well as in the West among Native Americans, but in particular in the East, in India and the Himalayas, people have been practicing for a long time the ability to control their own dreams. So this is uh, what people do when they practice yoga nidra, when they pr practice yoga milam, and other disciplines coming from non-scientific traditions. So this is something that can be learned. Most people have experienced lucid dreams when they are more to the young side of, of life, but then spontaneously, it's quite rare. So in lucid dreams, one can control the dream partially or completely, and this requires uh, skill. It's something that can be practiced. People that are really good at that, they can change everything. They can change the setting. They can choose the characters with whom they will interact. They can change their own dream body. They can do amazing things. This is something that science discovered over the course of centuries. It has been really neglected for the most part of the 20th century. The end of the 70s, two researchers, one in England, one in the United States, discovered in parallel ways to demonstrate that people were not faking it because this is was this was a very common argument against lucid dreaming is that people were just faking and, and and coming up with something that was created by waking imagination so what both uh, hearn and laberge discovered in the late 70s is that you can use eye movements during REM sleep to signal when one becomes lucid during dreaming and, and then you, you can be sure the person is dreaming because the recordings from muscles, they're flat. There's no muscle activity. When you are, when you, when you are in REM sleep, you're completely relaxed and your, your, your muscles in the body are, are, uh, produce no tonus that can be recorded. And therefore, if the signal is flat and your eyes are moving in a way that was pre-specified, then you can be sure the body is in REM sleep and the mind is conscious and awake, but awake to the inner reality, not awake to the outer reality. And during the 80s, uh, Laberge and, and, and his collaborators in California uh, published many papers showing that the REM sleep that goes on during lucid dreaming is like a super REM sleep. It's, it's, there's a lot of physiological activity. The heart is, is beating fast and, with, and variable, and the person is, is sweating, and, and, and there's a lot of activation overall so it's like a super REM sleep then 
this research kind of uh, submerged for some time. The hardcore neuroscientists were still not convinced and it was not of interest throughout the, the 90s for most of those scientists. But then at some point, the research advanced and, and different groups in different places in the United States, in Europe, began to find that the same areas that are activated during waking when you do perform an, an action uh, get to be reactivated when you perform the same action in a lucid dream, that you can even improve in some task if you practice it in the lucid dream. The demonstration also that when people have lucid dreams, they have more activation of the prefrontal cortex. So if you remember, I said uh, earlier uh, during the interview, during regular dreaming, we have little activation of the prefrontal cortex and therefore little ability to, to conduct the dream. So things happen to us during dreaming rather than we make them happen in most cases. But during lucid dreaming, this chain of causality is reversed. The person that is dreaming is conscious and, and causing changes in the dream. And this can be seen in correspondence with more activation of the prefrontal cortex. So nowadays, this is very is a very hot topic in neuroscience. And of course, for people that are just listening now and they're not into the brain uh, research, what is the benefit for me of learning how to, to perform lucid dreaming? Well, I would say, First of all, it's fun. It's interesting. It's 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 uh, you know what you said before about you know uh, uh, having a, a, a riveting experience becomes even more riveting. You can fly. You can get out of the atmosphere, go into the universe, and perform many different actions that are quite thrilling. In fact, people in psychoanalysis will say, "Well, but perhaps you shouldn't be messing with your time of regular dreaming, and this is important for your unconscious." Like, tend to agree with that, but I think you can certainly dedicate some of your time to lucid dreaming without any any sort of, of, of problem. This is not the case, though, for people that have a tendency towards psychosis. People that are psychotic or that were psychotic or they're prone to, to psychosis, they do not benefit from lucid dreaming as they do not benefit from psychedelics. They, they actually benefit from a better distinction between reality and, and, and inner reality and outer reality. Yeah, in your book, you uh, talk about dreams being clearly akin to psychosis, that uh, in both states, there's a lack of censorship and the lack of awareness of what's real and what's not real. And so that would be dangerous, I think, for a psychotic person. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, though, to think about lucid dreaming as a way of having control over something that in normal dreaming, you don't have control over. I mean, it's it's almost by definition, a, a dream is when the sensor is is off and the rational judgment is off. And yet in lucid dreaming, you can put that back on in a way. I imagine you don't have complete control over the dream because part of the purpose of lucid dreaming is to make kind of tweaks to the dream, but then you still want to see what's going to happen. So there's a kind of suspense still. Uh, if it were completely mapped out, it wouldn't lose its interest. Yes, in the Western tradition, I would say. And which is actually, to some extent, a new age tradition. But in the East, in the, those disciplines that I mentioned before, yoga, Milan, and Nidra, there's a series of steps. So one begins by changing the setting and the, the characters and then the body and then going through objects and, and basically defying the, the laws of, of physics, which do not apply to the inner world. And then, but in the late stage, it's about uh, ego dissolution. So it's about reaching the... Uh, the clear void of light. It's about 
basically dissolving the ego. And that's something that is achieved through meditation, that is, it can be achieved through psychedelics, can be achieved through tantric sex. There are many, many ways in which one can go to that state of mind that in the Upanishads is called Turiya. And I, I think that that is, an, is a name, it's a, it's a goal in lucid dreaming in the East, but it's not a goal. As you say, in, in the West, the goal is to have adventures. And therefore, uh, the control cannot be full. It has to be less than full so that there is novelty. There's something that is not the dreamer to interact with. One thing that reminds me of is in therapy, the relationship of the patient or client to their own unconscious, that people who, particularly if they've had trauma in their background, especially childhood trauma, they're in a, in a way afraid of their unconscious. They, they want to keep it sealed over because the contents are too frightening. And the more one is able to sort of uh, view one's own unconscious as, as on your side in a sense, or a friend or an ally, then you can be curious about anything that the unconscious produces that it, it no longer feels like it's going to overwhelm you. And I would think that the uh, that also applies to dreams. One, one word we haven't used yet in this interview is nightmares, you know, which clearly for most people are very, very unwelcome. But there are other people for whom nightmares. Oh, yeah, that's just that's just a nightmare. You know, you wake up from the nightmare. Oh, yeah, that's just a nightmare. You go back to sleep. <laughs> you know, and other people, it's, it feels like something uh, emotionally so real that they can't go back to sleep. The more you wish it away, the more they come back. Nightmares were were surely very important for our the survival of our lineage as far back as time goes. But to have repetitive nightmares is usually the symptom of of a problem i think that in 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 nature animals are most likely having nightmares most of the time because they are every day is a day in which you can easily die and probably the first dreams in the mammalian lineage were nightmares this is something that has been proposed 21 years ago by some a group of finnish researchers auntie revonsu and katia valley the notion that dreams, and especially originally in the evolution of dreaming, were mostly about the simulation of future threats. But this does not account for the entirety of the dream phenomenology. We, we have many dreams that are pleasant that, and, and many dreams that are in between. Uh, and I talk at length about this in my book. But the value of having a nightmare, I think, uh, is that of warning you about things that may go wrong, and and if you can prevent them from going wrong, then then you were, and if you use dreaming or dream interpretation to to figure it out, I, then you really you know use that power to your own benefit. But I think when when people ha are having repetitive recursive nightmares, one needs to think of what caused them. If there is a trauma that needs to be treated, and of course you you know more about this than I do, and. And, and if there's treatment to be to be performed, it has to be done in a way that um, fits the, the person, right? I mean, there are different ways of treating, but the treatment has to, to fit the person. Sometimes, though, people have repetitive nightmares that do not seem related to a trauma. And, that, and those are quite puzzling. Yeah, presumably there's some kind of preoccupation, even if it isn't from trauma. It could be a dilemma or it could be something that's really desired but feels thwarted. There's so many, so many possibilities. It's interesting because when it's about a particular challenge, it tends to dissolve over time, right? 
But sometimes people have these nightmares, re repetitive nightmares, not trauma related for decades, which, as you say, points to some very sustained desires, fears, challenges. So I want to tell you about a dream that I had uh, some years ago. There was a sound uh, in the house and I woke up and I said, was that God? I was still sleeping, I think. And my wife said, well, what did he say? And I said, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wasn't able to say anything art articulate. <laughs> uh, wow. Amazing. Interesting. It, it, it only became a good story. No, no, no guidance uh, derived from that one. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a religious person? Well, I'm, I'm a more traditional than religious. I, I'm Jewish, and, and I, I couldn't help thinking in your book about Joseph's dreams. And you, you do mention, I think, at least one of them, and you have a color plate of a painting of, about Joseph's dream. And it's clear in, in Jewish uh, theology and uh, history and uh, texts that his dreams were really foundational for what would unfold in reality, I mean, as according to the story, but also the a kind of a theology of divine intervention for on a, on a group level that the the whole thing is a kind of a proof text as as it were that uh, that God has a hand in what's going to happen, what's supposed to happen, and it, it's all ordained in a sense. Uh, this isn't necessarily what I believe, but I th but I think it's it's clear in, in not not just the dreams with about Pharaoh's dreams, the, the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, but also Joseph's original dreams about his family bowing down to him, and just to, the the dreams are so central to that story, and they're so interesting. And and as you mentioned before, when it's a repetitive dream, and then it's more important. So one other thing I was thinking about in terms of making friends with one's unconscious, so to speak. I had some training in hypnosis with uh, Erica Fromm, no, no relation to Eric Fromm, but she was a genuine Viennese born uh, so, uh, psychoanalyst, uh, hypnotist with a thick Viennese accent. It was perfect. <laughs> and uh, she developed a, an induction where the person imagines that they're in a perfectly round and invulnerable uh, submersible like a miniature submarine going down, 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 and, and seeing more and more interesting things and colorful fish. And uh, it's, a, it's supposed to be a metaphor for being fascinated with one's unconscious and feeling more and more relaxed as one observes and reports on, on their unconscious. Certainly with, that fits with, uh, with dreams. If, if you can have, have an attitude toward dreams and especially toward nightmares as being, well, this is things that are being presented to me by my unconscious for my benefit. Like if you can believe that, that statement, then they become welcome. And if someone, something from the mind becomes more welcome, it automatically becomes less frightening. And then you're well on the, well on the way to solving whatever problem you have to solve. Because if you're afraid of the content and you're running away from it and trying to suppress it, obviously you're not gonna be able to pay very close attention to it. Yes. Whereas the opposite is true if you, if you can. Yes. Yes, lack of attention to dreaming means lack of insight. Yeah, or even the capacity for, for insight. I mean, you're sort of closing it off before it even starts. So there's another, there's a hypnotic technique uh, where I use a split screen. And so the traumatic memories are on the left screen and the 
relaxation memories or relaxation experiences, I should say, are on the right screen. And you, first you learn how to do the right screen before you do the left screen uh, so that you can actually dip into, so to speak, dip into memories that are difficult. And you can also retreat from it as well. It, it's almost a, akin to lucid dreaming in a sense. You can steer your way through your unconscious rather than being controlled by it. Very interesting. Very interesting. So have you yourself uh, had experiences with lucid dreaming? Yes. Oh, yes. Since I was a child. And again, many times in my life in specific moments. Yes. And we used to investigate it in the lab. <laughs> I, have a, I have a student uh, working on this. Yes. They were uh, lucid dream experiences were very important in my life because they renewed my feeling of the of the tremendous depth that when you when you submerge the 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 submersible when you allow yourself to go deep there uh, so every time uh, i have a lucid dream i feel energized and i feel i feel this inner power of of the unconscious so is there a particular lucid dream that you'd feel comfortable sharing with us? Interesting. Um, so I, one thing I, I describe in my book is when I was very young, my father died. And I had, I entered, a, a, because of that trauma, I entered a period of repetitive nightmares. And I, ref, I, I, I won't give a spoiler here, but I go in the book, I describe the three different dreams that have, uh, a series of dreams uh, that, corresponded to the moments of the, the, the early moments, which were very uh, difficult, and then getting out of it and getting better. For me, what, it, what, what the one that I will describe here is the, the, the one at the very end, I'm chasing an, a tiger, and I am trying to hunt a tiger and, and block its uh, way out of a small island. But when I go there to, to stop, the, to, to trap the, the tiger, I see that the tiger is behind me. It's on. It, it somehow it, it it it's now on my back, and and then I decide to jump from the from a cliff and, and onto the sea, and when I hit the sea, I become lucid. And and this, I'm I'm not going to go into the details, but this dream is very important in my healing process, and I think it's quite amazing. I was only I was only probably six years old when I had that, and. And I become lucid when I when I hit the water and, and I had the, all these feelings and even like the, the temperature of the water. It's like it was very complex. And I, I can bring this memory even now after so many decades. And throughout my life, every time I had a lucid dream, I felt like it was deeply meaningful. Even though I understand that it's something that can be trained when it happens spontaneously, I think it's happening because you, as you said before, it's it's a gift of your unconscious to your conscious mind and it's something to be to be celebrated and to be welcomed and to be embraced well thank you so much for that example and thank you so much for this interview unfortunately we're out of time uh, my guest today Siddhartha Ribeiro a Brazilian neuroscientist writer and science communicator and the author of the Oracle of Night the history and science of dreams so this has really been a pleasure talking to you Siddhartha the same Stuart thank you very much excellent dialogue thank you I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.